Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. All right, my friends. Welcome back. Thanks so much for coming back this evening. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. The Dharma talk for tonight, if it were to have a title would be, what exactly is Buddhism? (laughs) A couple weeks ago, we had another meeting with our supportive advisory committee to keep moving forward and making this a workable sangha for all of us. And uh, we had a simple task. (laughs) In order to create a nonprofit around this lovely little community, we have to have a name. But in order to come up with a name, we had to figure out what are we exactly. (laughs) So we had this wonderful conversation that is still bopping around inside my head, which I'll share with you today. Uh, But we had this wonderful conversation about what what exactly are we doing here, so to speak, right? And so the way that it unfolded was kind of asking ourselves, are, are we Buddhists? Are we... Insight meditation practitioners, are we meditators? Are we, what exactly are we doing when we gather together here in community, in sangha, in meditation group? And I think that's a really good question for us to ask. I think it's a good question to ask for a few reasons. One, it can be healthy to have a solid, stable sense of spiritual identity. Like, what is it for you to be? on the path? What does it mean for you, most importantly, right? What does that mean for you to be on the path? How do you identify yourself when you talk to to others about what you do when you hop on the cushion? (laughs) Do you explain it to them in detail? Do you say that, you know, you're a meditator, a Buddhist, a practitioner, spiritual seeker, all the different labels that we could have? And those are just really good questions to have. When we look back on the Buddha's journey, the Buddha studied with a bunch of different teachers, went to different wisdom seekers of the time, was a very curious and intelligent and reflective person, right? When you look at the the way that his journey is described, there was a lot of trial and error, falling on his face, not being able to figure it out, being told that he was done, but not feeling like he made it to anywhere, you know, like those kind of things that, you know, we all experience while we're doing this kind of work. And of course, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, so there's that, you know, so it's just that that question of what is our spiritual identity and what does it mean to have one. So for the next few sessions, I wanted to explore that a little bit because it's been on my mind and I think it's a healthy, I think it's a healthy inquiry and you'll see why in a moment. But when I look back, you know, on my own spiritual journey and my own Buddhist journey, I guess you could say, I look back and I can see that in different contexts and with different people and in different times in my life as I grew in my practice, I identified differently on the path. So like when I first started meditating, I was 20, 20, 21, and I didn't want to seem weird. 
So this is before yoga got really popular and mindfulness hit pop culture. And so at the time, it was like, I didn't want people to think I was in a cult. <laughs> I didn't want people to think I was religious. I didn't. So I was, I had a spiritual identity that was slightly rooted in fear, that was slightly rooted in like, I don't want you to think I'm anything. I don't want to identify as anything, but I really like doing this thing on the cushion. This thing's really cool, but I don't want you to think I'm something that I'm not. And I didn't even know what I was. So there was this definite like kind of social pressure to try and navigate what was I doing on the cushion and who was I because I was doing it. And then there was the kind of family situation where I didn't want to freak out my parents because like I started meditating and they're like, what are you doing? Their, their concern initially was, I've talked about this before, but I still find it cute. So their concern was that I kept meditating every day. And their question was, why do you have to do it so much? Like, why doesn't it work and then go do something else? Like, why do you have to keep practicing? So there was this interesting concern that my parents had of like, man, every day he goes in the room and meditates. Like, every day, like, what is, what is that? So it sparked this kind of like, you know, and I, I kept saying like, no, I, you know, my, I remember specifically there was like, are you in a cult? What are you doing? Like, what is this? My initial like spiritual identity was this sort of fear based. I loved what I was doing, but I didn't have any way to talk to people about it and was very concerned about it being religious or uh, I was in a cult of some kind. So in the beginning, I would tell people I was a meditator. I enjoyed meditating. That seemed safe. That was healthy. It was like, I am a meditator. I love meditation. This is what I do. And I often described it in scientific terms. It's good for the brain, lowers my blood pressure, all of these things, which was true. I was doing it for mostly for insomnia and headaches and anxiety at the time. So it was kind of medically driven, <laughs> so to speak. I wasn't necessarily seeking awakening uh, or anything of that magnitude, but I was comfortable saying I was a meditator. And then over the years, as I got more and more into the Dharma, uh, I started with some Zen practices. I moved to TM, got into Dharma, uh, and then very different traditions in Buddhism. And, but I noticed over the years, as I've grown in practice, there were times where it really fe felt the sense of connectedness and spaciousness. And in those moments, I wanted to, I felt this identity with like a spiritual practice. It was a spiritual practice. It was much more than just well-being and self-care, which was always there. But then there was this sense of something greater. And over time, I would tell people, well, you know, I'm a spiritual, I have a spiritual practice. That, that also felt like something that resonated with me. It was a spiritual practice. It wasn't religious, but spiritual, spiritual practice. I stayed away from the term Buddhist and Buddhism. And then as time went on and I got more into my practice, decade or so later, I got comfortable with the, the term Buddhism and Buddha and Buddhists. But I still didn't identify as being a Buddhist. So what I would tell people is, I practice Buddhist meditation, but I'm not a Buddhist. That was, that was a good, <laughs> good five years of my time. And, and to this day, sometimes if I'm talking to particular people, that makes sense to say. like, Because what I want to tell them is like, I do this thing, but it's not the bad kind. Like it's not the religious kind, or the the heavy-handed kind, or the dogmatic kind, or you know, or whatever the case may be. But now, as I've now been doing this for almost 30 years, I'm very comfortable just saying I practice Buddhism. I'm a Buddhist teacher. I practice Buddhist meditation, and it just feels comfortable. Um, in certain contexts, I'll explain, you know, what that means. But 
I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what, what is the comfortable identity for what we're actually doing on the path? What does it mean to be on the Eightfold Path for you? How do you, how, what, what does that labeling happen inside your head and when you talk to others? And I'm going to talk about some of this, how this might be helpful to be, to be framed. One of the interesting things about the Dharma, particularly in the West, is that most of us come from other religious traditions as kids, right? In the, Dhar- in the Dharma in the West, many of us were in Christian traditions, have Christian upbringings. I went to an Episcopalian high school, Christian graduate school, and now I'm a Buddhist Dharma teacher. Uh, my sister's Catholic, my dad was Catholic. Like, we come from these different backgrounds, and it's really not uncommon that folks in the West that practice the Dharma come from these other traditions. And it's also equally, equally uh, common that we've had some bad experiences with the dogmatism and authoritarianism of our religious upbringing. And the word religion or even Buddhism makes the heart clench up a little bit. Like we're like, eh, I've had some bad experiences. I don't want to repeat those bad experiences. So a lot of us share that kind of stuff, right? And what's interesting to me is the challenge with calling Buddhism a religion or saying that it's not a religion. So here's, this is what I want to talk about a little bit here, is is Buddhism actually a religion or is it something else? Because for me, it's felt like all kinds of different things over the years. But what is it? Is it a religion? Is it not a religion? And I wanted to talk about the ways that Buddhism is like a religion and the ways that it is different from being a religion and how we might experience those as practitioners and what it might mean, might mean to us. So one thing is that if you look it up online, you're always going to see, you know, how they always say like the five big religions, right? And Buddhism is one of those quote unquote great religions. And I, I don't really understand what qualifies them to be the great religions. I'm presuming the length of time they've been around and the number of practitioners or something. I, I don't know what allows you to get in that top five. I don't think anyone else has been allowed in, you know, since that, li- that list was made. <laughs> it's always, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism. I think those are the, that's the click, right? And you can't, there's no one else allowed in that click. Those are the five major religions and everything else is the lesser religions or however. But Buddhism is in there. So if you look it up online, a good portion of the world looks at Buddhism as just a religion and all of its different offshoots, including American Buddhism. So we, we see that it's there. And, and what's interesting is that in the United States, when they do polls around the impact of the Dharma in people's lives, they say on average it's about 30 to 40 million people in the United States say that even though they may not identify as being Buddhist, that Buddhism and the ideas of mindfulness and Buddhism have changed their life in some way. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people engaging in it in some form that makes them feel good, right? And worldwide, it's 10%. 10% of the world's population is Buddhist, about 1% in the United States. But about 30, 40 million people in the United States say they're impacted by it and have gotten benefit from it, even if it's just from reading a book on the Dharma or something like that. So when we come to this five great religions of Buddhism being one of them, I want to start just by talking about some of the characteristics that put it in that category traditionally as what we call a religion. So one thing about the Dharma that is similar to the other religious traditions is that it has a kind of religious structure that's typical of what we call religious practice. And this includes four or five things I think we can 
uh, relate to in the practice. The biggest one is that religions tend to postulate an ultimate reality, right? Could be God or heaven or nirvana or some kind of ultimate reality. And so most of our big religious organizations and communities have this idea that there's an ultimate reality, either a goal or a bigger picture that is ultimate, right? And that tends to be the place that we're all going. Now, in Buddhism, it happens to be nirvana, which is not a place, but it is something that we aspire to. The other thing that characterizes organized religions is so you have this goal or this higher ultimate reality, and then there is a set of practices or teachings that are codified in some way that are supposed to get you there or get you to the experience, right? And so it's how to live, right? You've got these sort of practices that you do, and then that gives you this ultimate experience, whatever that experience is based on, based on the tradition. And we, we do see that in uh, Buddhism. One, <laughs> one of the things that's funny, it's really common uh, when I ask students, and myself included in this, but when I ask students, oh, how did you come to the Dharma? And students will say, well, you know, I just, I don't have any interest in organized religion, but I, that's why I really like the Dharma. And it's like, Buddhism is so ridiculously organized. <laughs> it's lists within lists within lists of things, right? The Four Noble Truths, the Seven Factors of Awakening. You won't find a more organized <laughs> spiritual practice than the Dharma. It's highly organized, too organized. You know, it's, it comes from Indian philosophy with all of its, all of its lists. So, Buddhism is a high, highly organized in its teachings that get us to this goal uh, of awakening. Another part that is religious about it, traditionally, is that there are people in the community at large who, at least historically, or maybe, maybe now as well, but who have some claim that they have actually experienced that end goal in some way, right? That they have experienced it and kind of verified it, that it's worth doing or aspiring to and practicing. And if they haven't experienced it, they have some knowledge of the path to get to that thing. So you've got these wisdom bearers in religions that hold the traditions and teach it to others and have this claim that, okay, there's this ultimate goal and these are the codified teachings and we're going to show you how to get there. I cannot lay claim to, to being a stream enterer, but uh, I can lay, lay claim to the fact that meditation really helps me. <laughs> so I've got that under my belt. But most people, when we look at organized religions, we have the sense that there is someone who has experienced that end goal and has some wisdom to offer and carries the teachings. And the other parts of this that are quote-unquote religious um, is the fact that in organized religions, People gather in communities to keep the knowledge going, right? They gather in communities to support themselves socially in their practices, and they get together to care for each other and have some social fabric. But most importantly, that they come together to practice in, in what we call sangha, right, into community. And that emotional support and social support is organized, right? Every Thursday we come, that's our organization. So... That's some of the, the, the reason the Dharma is in that top five, the top five, right? Is that it's, it has a little structure that is very typical of, of religion. So in that sense, one could say, okay, yeah, it has some religious structures to it. Now, it also has some representations of religion that we're familiar with with other religions. The Dharma has precepts, 
which is our ethical principles, right? We have our five precepts or our eight precepts, or if you're a monastic, dozens and dozens of precepts, hundreds of precepts. Um, so we have ethics. And ethics is usually the domain of religion and spirituality, right? As a psychotherapist, when folks come to see me, we don't sit around and talk about you know, ethics, <laughs> unless there's some harm going on. But separate from that, we don't talk about, you know, ethical principles or morality or something like that. That's the domain of spirituality or, or religion. So another thing that the Dharma has, you know, in that religious sort of checkbox is it's got ethic. There's a set of principles that are integral to what it is about how to live and to be a quote-unquote good person or what we call skillful, skillful person. We've got those ethics. And then there's other parts of this that are somewhat symbolic and representative of traditional religions, although we experience it kind of differently in the Dharma. So one is that we have places of practice, right? So this is what we call these centers, though, in the Dharma, a Buddhist center, right? And in other traditions, they're considered temples or churches. So we have our sacred space where we come to practice, which has Someone who was not in this room might come in from the outside and look at this and the icon up here and be like, whoa, this is obviously, duh, <laughs> religion, <laughs> right? But we may not experience it that way. But we have our institution and our sanctuary. We have rituals, Vipassana practice, right? We have our ritual practice. We have uh, precept ceremonies and we have like our full moon ceremonies and Four Noble Truths will take our, you know, we take these different commitments and these aspirations. Now, we might not all individually regularly go through those kind of ritual practices, but they are in the Dharma. They're in the Dharma, and they're a part of the structure of its history that we have. We have some rituals. We have texts, which in a lot of traditions are, have a quote, sacred texts. In the Dharma, you know, we have a different approach to the teachings. The teachings are very, like, earthy, common, grounded. The, the text itself isn't holy. The, the text itself is a set of instructions, more, more likely. You know, it doesn't mean that our experience of the text or the teachings don't have a sense of like, wow, this is amazing. I'm so grateful for it, that it's helped me. But we have our, our texts. And then the last two things that kind of put the Dharma traditionally in this quote-unquote religious category is, one, it has inherent in it beliefs about what happens after death. Right? Even if we don't as individuals believe or not believe in, in that particular aspect, the Buddha certainly believed in rebirth. It was a common belief at the time. And so that's also a part of the general dharma at large, is this idea of rebirth. So the tradition itself is laying some claim to understanding about what happens after death. For those of you who have listened to enough of my teachings or the podcast, you know that I always tell people, like, I, I can't comment on that because I haven't had the experience to know whether that's true or not. I take an agnostic approach to it. Maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. I haven't had an experience to confirm that. If I do, you'll be the first to know. It doesn't mean other people in the traditions and other teachers are firmly believe and have had their experiences of that, but I don't feel comfortable laying claim to that because that would be insincere because I haven't had that experience. But I'm not opposed to it or it doesn't bother me in any way. But as part of the tradition, I know a lot of us just put those kind of things off to the side and we practice the rest of the path and we may or may not believe in uh, rebirth or any of that stuff. But it's there. It is in the tradition and it, it puts it in that category of a type of religious orientation. And then another part of this, this is one of my favorite parts, is that religions tend to have a codified set of teachings that evoke in us 
particular qualities that we think are worth aspiring to. So what we call spiritual qualities, compassion, generosity, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, all the different ones that we think. And so what makes something in those top five categories is that you've got a tradition that has some practices that claim that it will open the heart in some way and bring you up to this level of experience that is in one sense noble. So like in the Dharma, we call it nobility or the noble truths, right? Because it's supposed to bring us up to this level of reality that is considered worth admiring. So we, the Buddhism has that a little bit as well. We've got these transformative qualities that happen in our practice and that we aspire to. We want to be compassionate and kind. Honesty is another one of those spiritual traits, right? We might call them virtues in the West and philosophies, that there's these virtues that we aspire to cultivate in our practice. So in those ways, we can see why someone would look at the Dharma from the outside or from historical perspective and say, okay, yeah, the Dharma is a form of some kind of religion because it's got these religious qualities. So we could look at that and we can acknowledge that, okay, that's a part of the teaching. Now, if it were just those, those things, then we could say, okay, yeah, I guess it is that. But the Dharma is also very different from other organized religions. Most organized religions have a deity, right? There is a worshiping of a god, not in the Dharma, right? We don't have a deity. The Buddha didn't consider himself to be divine. Normal dude, hanging out, feeling suffering, <laughs> wanting to get out of it, wanted to know if he could be happy, wasn't sure he could be, uh, tr- you know, almost died trying. You know, it, it wasn't, it's not a story of a god in any, in any way, shape, or form. And the Buddha continued to reassert that throughout his uh, life, that he was not some kind of deity, that the Dharma was open to everyone. It was something we could all, awakening was our essential inherent birthright that we could actually go through the practice and have this experience. And in a lot of organized religions, the founder is somehow a representative of of God. So that really shifts the perspective on what the Dharma is, because that is a big difference between what we call religion, is that in the Dharma, we don't worship. (laughs) There's no worship in that respect. So there's that huge left turn. The Dharma's cruising along as a religion, and that just cranks the wheel completely, and it's like, oh, we're not going there, though, right? So it just completely changes lanes, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, no, we're not doing that. So we're not over there. That's the very interesting distinction, which is why it's often confusing to say, like, what is, how is it a religion if there's no, no God? Another aspect that we all, a lot of us can relate to is that many organized religions are have a lot of faith orientation, that faith is a strong component, that to be a part of it or be associated, there's a belief in someone, something, and the Buddha also just cranks the wheel and is like, don't believe anything I say. That's his big question, right? Be a lamp unto yourself is what the Buddha says. So he also has this huge divergence from the religions of his day where he's like, yeah, don't believe what, don't have faith in in what I'm talking about. Experience it for yourself. And until you experience it for yourself, don't consider it to be true. How often does a founder of some, (laughs) no one does that. It's a shortcut to not getting a good following. Just tell people you're divine and that you know the way and that they should have faith. That's the, nope, not that way. Just completely different. So we don't have, it's not like faith is not a quality within the Dharma. It is, there's, it's mentioned in different lists, but it's not faith in 
the Buddha or him as a deity or any of that kind of stuff. It's more faith in oneself and in the practice that like, comes from the experience. As you do it, you begin to have faith that it's going to work because you start to see that it, it is working. So in those two ways, Buddhism takes a sharp turn away from what we call organized religion in a big way. And those two things alone tend to draw people to it who were in previous religious traditions that it didn't work for them. It wasn't feeling nourishing and there was no contentment there or it was a negative experience. That allows the Dharma to open up to other people in a completely, completely different way. Another part of the Dharma that is really interesting and this is where we kind of experience it in the West is that unlike a lot of uh, religious traditions, Buddhism lends itself to being secularized and broken into parts. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by this. So in the Dharma, it makes perfect sense for people coming into Buddhism to say, I'm a Dharma practitioner, but it's not a, it's not a religion for me. It's like a spiritual experience, right? Now, it, in another religious tradition, that phrase is not going to work. You, you can't say that you're like, a non like you, other traditions, being religious is what it is. What it is. Buddhism allows for this shift in our experience to where we can relate to the practice in various ways, and it's not necessarily religious for all of us in the way that we think of the term term religious. An example would be we can take mindfulness out of the Dharma and break it into parts, and we can use mindfulness for personal growth, stress reduction, a sense of spiritual connection to things. But someone wouldn't say, um, I'm not a religious Christian. I'm, you know, I just practice Christianity for self-help or like to lower my blood pressure or, you know, doctor recommended it so I could sleep better at night. Like that it, Dharma lends itself to that kind of experience, right? Where it can be different things to different people and not necessarily. So we can, loving kindness practice is another example. It's embedded in the home of the Dharma, right? But there's all of these folks using loving kindness to develop self-compassion and develop healing and develop stress reduction, which is amazing. But you don't normally see that in other traditions, like parts of it being pulled out and being used and people feeling so nourished by a tiny little piece of the experience, right? You <laughs> and I, I'm not at all, I, I don't think it's coming off this way, but I'm not mocking other traditions at all. And this is not my intention, just, just for contrast comparison. But again, you're not gonna say that you used to be a Muslim in the religious sense, but now you just practice Islam for, you know, for insomnia or for knee pain because like, like, but Buddhism, you hear people saying that like, oh yeah, I practice loving kindness practice and insight meditation and I had this back injury, but now I can depersonalize that and I can do body scanning. So Buddhism has this unique thing where we can pull these different parts out and practice them and get incredible healing, even if we're not putting it all together into its whole into its whole part. And that's very unique when you look at the different types of traditions that Buddhism lends itself to that. And you see that in America, North America in particular, that the Dharma gets changed. Things get added, things get taken away, and it just does its thing in different ways for different people. So that's another major difference than other religions is that the Dharma, as it reaches each culture, looks really different, significantly different. You know, Dharma meets Japan, Zen, right? Dharma meets 
Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism, like Mahayana Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, like you see that Buddhism reaches cultures and has these really different expressions as it grows and develops with people. And that's unique in its expression, that Buddha. And they, one of the things they say in the Dharma is that the flexibility of its practices has led to it being so popular and so strongly transforming cultures. Every culture that the Dharma touches, strongly transforming because you don't just need to have faith to be a part of the community. You can just practice some mindful breathing and boom, you've got some experiences that you're having that are very positive. You've been transformed by it. So another thing that, the, that look, when we look at the Dharma seems really different. I'll say one other thing and then I'll kind of pull this together for us. Another thing that's unique about the Dharma and contributes to our conversation about what is Buddhism? Religion, non-religion, what, what is this? Is that in the West, it is so similar and shares so many traits with Western psychotherapy. Another aspect of the Dharma is all of its psychological principles. For many of us, Buddhism much more seems similar to a therapeutic modality or a healing modality than it does to a religion. It's always been that way for me. It, to me, it's always been, I've always seen the Dharma as like a healing, it's like this healing thing, <laughs> this healing thing, right? And it, it much more shares psychotherapy tools than it shares, say, elements of, say, Christianity or something like that. So when Westerners met these Southeast Asian spiritualities, a lot of the, the Western minds were like, oh my gosh, it's a psychology. Like, this is amazing. Like, this is a whole psychology of healing and well-being. So it's another aspect of the Dharma that is interesting is that whole Western medical, psychological communities have taken the Dharma and parts of the Dharma and have transformed their own modalities using Buddhism. But none of them would say that they're Buddhists, right? Or that they became Buddhists in any way, right? We see this with um, the way that John Kabat-Zinn used mindfulness for pain management, and it became huge in medicine through those routes. But you wouldn't say that Buddhism as a religion spread into medicine. It's just the influence, right? So it's so interesting that the Dharma has this capacity to transform us in all of these different ways. It certainly comes out of these traditional religious structures, but when we engage them, we don't always identify as being quote-unquote religious or Buddhist or whatever it might be. What's interesting long-term is that I encourage people to do what Ram Das suggested. Ram Das said he noticed that when he was teaching people and introducing them to meditation, that well, he cited two things. Two things that became stumbling blocks for folks in practice. One was unresolved, <laughs> unresolved issues with parents. Now, none of you have any of those, so you're all good. Um, <laughs> unresolved issues with parents and baggage from our previous religious experience from our childhood. <laughs> no one has any of that. So, you know, this is, this is an exceptional group of people because we've all healed all that and it's all integrated. But Ram Das said that as we come to the Dharma, we need to look at how we're inheriting from our previous past spiritual karma, so to speak. Like, how are we interpreting the Dharma through the lens of our previous upbringing and relationship with spiritual teachings? How we do that usually impacts how we identify as a spiritual practitioner, what it means to us. And ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you identify as a Buddhist or a meditator or a, as Goenkaji likes to say, he's a Dhammist. 
or he like, did like to say before he passed away. Uh, Goenka would call himself a Domist. So whatever you call yourself, that is not the point. The take-home here is to just, when you take the Dharma into your life, to be thinking to yourself, how am I actually thinking of myself at, on this path? Like, what is the internal identity that comes up for me? And how do I share that with other people? And why do I share it in that way? Is there aversion? Is there craving? Is there, like I said, in my practice, there was a lot of fear about identifying as a spiritual practitioner. You just want to make sure that the way that you inhabit and be in your practice is comfortable, right? That that identity is very comfortable for yourself. And I, I just really like the way Ram Das reminds us that when we interpret new spiritual practices, we do through the lens of you know where we were brought up, whatever those tensions were, whatever those uncomfortable situations were, that we, uh, we inherit that and we bring that into our practice. One of the things I'll be talking about, uh, I guess, next week will be the therapy connection. I'm going to talk a little bit deeper than I normally do and explain what a lot of the Buddhist Dharma teachers say about the significant differences between therapy and the Dharma and how we need to be careful about using Dharma as therapy, like what is the Dharma designed for and what are its limits and how it can heal us and what awakening is compared to say what a therapy insight. And there's a, this is really important as we get into our path and start walking the path is to, since the Dharma is so similar to psychotherapy models, we, as we're on the path, we need to really be clear on the limits of the Dharma to heal certain things like trauma or depression or anxiety and where does therapy come in to supplement some of that stuff? And why is it that the Buddha didn't have a therapy, a formal therapy component to, to the thing? Why was it just this transpersonal, transcendental practices? And there's good reasons for that, which I'll go into. One thing I'll say uh, before I conclude today, though, is that many of us make a contrasting distinction in the West in particular between... Uh, what we might call spirituality and religion. And I know I did this for, for many years, and I still do uh, I still do on occasion. And I wanted to read a quote, and then I'll, I'll explain to you the distinction and why it's important. Uh, this is from a Zen Roshi. This is from uh, Joan Sutherland. They say this, and it's in the context of, is Buddhists a religion? Being crazy in love with awakening and committed to it for every being in the universe is a pretty strong religious impulse. Yet the koans and other traditions in the Buddhist big tent undermine attempts to solidify religion around that impulse. We don't always succeed, but the fact that some keep trying is one of the powerful potentials of Buddhism. Buddhism is being deeply religious without religion. That's one example of that the contrast between spirituality and religion. I just wanted to share that. It'll come into our talk also next week. Because we have often a religious inheritance, the word spiritual is a safer term. I know it has been for me. Religion tends to remind us of dogmatism and authoritarianism and a rigidity, a lack, lack of flexibility, and for some of us, a shame-based history in religion where we were told we weren't good enough or that we weren't following the practices right and that was going to end with some negativity in some way, either in the present or the future. And so when we look at religion, we obviously look at that as organized, having 
particular rules, regulations, and that if we don't follow those rules and regulations, there is some kind of sadness or being ostracized or not accepted. And some of us inherit that. And it's important that we get in touch with that as we're practicing so we don't re-traumatize ourselves if that's where we come from. The word spirituality is often associated with more personalized practice, an inward journey that's more personal, right? That each one of us goes in and has this inward experience that we call a spiritual experience. So it's more inwardly connotated, right? Which is why the Dharma really lends itself to that, to that term. Because the Dharma, we're all sitting in the room, but we're each engaging really in a very unique version of Vipassana because it's your heart and your mind that gets awakened in the practice, right? Because the practice or the awakening is not all of us having faith in something external, but rather each of us going in to do the personal work. It's like we're all doing the same thing, but we're also doing completely different things at the same time. Buddhism lends itself to being referred to as a spiritual practice. Because of that, there's a lot of internal work. There's a lot of personalized work. And there's a lot of acceptance and tolerance for different people coming to the practice without being judged or shamed or being told that, you're doing it wrong or you're not doing it correctly. And so a lot of us come to the Dharma because of that. And it's really helpful to be able to acknowledge that in ourselves, that we enjoy the Dharma because of that tolerance, because of that compassion and that self-love and self-care that's focused in our, in our tradition, whether we think it's religious or identify as Buddhist or whatever. Whatever the comfort level is, recognizing that distinction between an organized religion and spirituality can be helpful. One last thing I'll say is, historically, one of the things that scholars really admire about the Dharma is that of all the quote-unquote great religions, the, I really need to stop saying quote-unquote, what am I saying? I keep saying that, it's so weird. It's okay to say once, but not a dozen times. Oh my God, that's going to be in the podcast. That is hilarious. Um, I kept catching myself and saying, stop saying that, but my mind would listen. There was a part of myself that just wouldn't shut up. Just so you know, I am not in control of my own mind. If you think I am, you can, that's not true at all. <laughs> um, I wanted to, as you know, I enjoy talking about the shadow side of things, so I just wanted to dive in just slightly into the shadow side of this distinction that we often use with what we say spirituality. So what scholars say is one of the things that is really likable about the Dharma is that historically, there, it's rare that the Dharma as a religion or a spiritual teaching is used in the spirit of violence. Of all the traditions that, have, that are out there, historically, there's the least amount of incidents on a large scale of the Dharma being used to invoke or incite violence, war, or to justify violence and war. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It has happened. Sri Lanka, they've got violence in Sri Lanka that is Buddhist, Buddhist violence. Um, and there's a couple other examples. But one of the things that really makes, again, Buddhism unique is that there hasn't been historically a use of the Dharma um, to incite or engage in violence, which is wonderful. And I think people, when they come to the Dharma, they feel that really deep focus on compassion anyway. But um, that being said, one of the drawbacks that scholars tend to say about secularizing a religious practice is that 
the secular practices can then become a form of religiosity, meaning spirituality is good, religion bad. I'm okay because I'm spiritual, you're bad because you're religious. So there becomes another endemizing of the other in, in culture, especially in Buddhist-type traditions, where anyone who's a part of a religion is somehow bad or ignorant or brainwashed or some way, and then spiritual is not. So we have to be careful about how we judge other people who consider what they're doing to be a quote-unquote religion and watch for that, that in reverse situation where we start judging. Another part of that is, in we see this in Buddhist communities, and this is talked about quite a bit, where we, we get, because we inherit a particular baggage around the Dharma, we get nervous about Buddhist rituals or anything that could resemble religion from our past without first looking how it is used in the Dharma, right? We look at it, it's a ritual. I've been in rituals before, bad. This one is a ritual, so it's bad. And so we have to look at that as, as we approach, if, if in how we approach the Dharma as secular, we just need to remind ourselves that there's all kinds of beautiful, beautifully cool rituals in the Dharma that are wonderful, that do not uh, invoke or create a sense of that bad vibe that we maybe had as kids when we had to go to mass or so, something else that we had to do. And so we just need to look at that aversion and pushing away that might just be another blind spot as we look at ourselves as being better than everybody else because we're a part of a different type of spiritual practice. So uh, we can look at those. I had the uh, pleasure of coming here for a precept ceremony, watching folks take their precepts. I love ritual. Ruth Dennison, out of, the, out of the religion we all come from, out of the lineage of Ruth Dennison, she was so into ritual. She loved flowers and candles and incense, and she was always doing ritual. I mean, we couldn't even eat without having a four-hour ritual of gratitude practice. Like, everything was, was ritual. So we just have to look at that, look at that sense of pushing back and making more enemies where we don't need to and looking at our egos and thinking that we're better or more mature spiritually because we don't have a ritual or this or that. So we'll just keep an eye on that too as we move into your practice. One last thing I'll say is that when we engage in something like the Dharma, one other shadow side of engaging the Dharma as a spiritual practice is that one of the distinctions we, we tend to make is that we feel religion is really confining because there's lots of rules. Again, I call that dogma, dogmatism. Uh, it's rigid. There's a rigidity, and a lot of us push back against that rigidity. That being said, the Dharma has quite a few guideposts, right? Our precepts and renunciation and an aspiration to be compassionate, our aspiration to be honest. I mean, those aren't rule rules, but they kind of are. I mean, that, those are our version of those rules. They may not feel rigid when you get in there, but it is important to know that in the Dharma, we have those things too. We have those versions of advice of do this to have this result. Practice this because this will happen. And if we look at those, particularly the precepts, that's the, that's the big one that we tend to push back against. But if we look at the, the, I don't call them rules, the, not rules, I guess they're rules. If you look at the guide, I call them guideposts. When you look at the guideposts that are laid down in the Dharma, it's really helpful to use it as a practice to watch your aversion 
to participating in that part of the practice. So you can see where there is healthy skepticism and just aversion from your past that's coming up and being overlaid. I know my own experience when I did, I took precepts for two years, did this big precept thing, and it took me like five years to not think it was the dumbest thing ever in like mocking Buddhism for telling me that I can't smoke pot or I should be sober for some reason. And when I finally took the precepts and really spent several years keeping them, oh my gosh, my, it was like so, the healing that there's so much healing and so much depth of practice that took place. And when I first approached it, my attitude was like, you don't get to tell me what to do. <laughs> like I didn't, be, I, didn't, I didn't go buy the meditation cushion so I could follow rules. Like that was how I approached, you know, the Dharma. But I came from a place where I didn't want to do that again, right? And so it took me a while to realize that hey, some of the rules in here are really helpful if we can let go of some of our baggage around them. So it can be, uh, it can be really helpful. Thanks for listening, my friend. We'll continue our journey. We'll talk about therapy and the Dharma next week. You got some good stuff to share about that. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.